0: Kas, hey, yeah, it's all right. Good on you. Yeah. Instagram also at the Broadcast Podcast. Remember, we don't spell it with a C; we spell it with a K. So, mate, take it easy. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked, brought to you by the MLW Radio Network and the Front Row Material brand. As you guys know, we are reading the Sabu book, and we've read the first ten chapters. I do appreciate everybody bearing with me here. This has been a long journey, but I do, like I said before, appreciate everybody hanging here with me. So chapter 11, just to kind of give you a heads up, is 58 pages long. So it looks like what we're gonna do is we're gonna break chapter 11 down into a couple of installments. So I just wanna kind of give you a heads up. We'll be calling it chapter 11, part one, part two, and so on and so on. But I wanted to get this started here because I did have an opportunity. So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's jump right into Chapter 11. This one is entitled ECW Return. After leaving WCW land, I got a call from Paul Heyman. His voice was very low and rehearsed. I knew something was up. He had been planning a big show for 1995's November to Remember. I guess what had happened was the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission was going to shut them down, and it was going to be more like a November nobody would remember. You see, on a recent show, Cactus Jack lit a chair on fire, and it was wrapped in a kerosene soaked towel in the ring, and he went after Tommy Dreamer and Terry Funk with it. During the spot, the flames started to grow, some moved up towards his hands, and he swung it. He ultimately lost control of it and released the weapon. It bounced off the top rope and took flight. The flaming chair and towel landed out in the audience and caused quite a scare for some of the fans in attendance. Terry Funk got burned badly in the process, as did a fan who ended up suing ECW. The commission did not like the idea of putting fans in danger. This incident, coupled with a few other extreme moments in ECW, led to some huge worries. Because of this, ECW was in danger of being shut down completely. Paul Heyman knew that I pulled some weight with some of the commissioners in that state. He remembered every time he had signed our shows, he would come over and hit me with all kinds of questions and ask for pictures, but really didn't do that to anybody else. I think it's because he's a big fan of my uncles, Paul Heyman said to me. I'm not really sure. I don't care if he wants you as your baby, he said. If you can get them to let us have this show, you'll be helping out the boys a lot, and you'll be helping me out. And I will owe you a big one. I knew Paul was swallowing his pride to make this phone call in the first place. I listened as he asked me to call the commissioner on my own and to try to persuade him to let the show happen under my watch. Now, I agree, letting me be the guy in charge of not allowing weapons to get out of hand seemed a little ridiculous, but so was everything else in this business. So, you'll give him a call? Paul asked. I waited a few moments to take the bloated worm... Out of my stomach, I was squirming around like a greasy snake that I was. Uh, I, I guess I could. I mean, I knew the show would be a payday for the boys. I also knew that it would help out Paul tremendously. But neither is a reason why I should be the one who has to do it. The only reason I would help is that I knew I would be able to hold him up for some extra money. I really thought this plan was dumb. See, there's no way they're going to work with this. I thought, but I figured there was at least a payday in it for me either way. Not having any steady work and any income right now, I agreed to make the phone call. After making the call, it turned out that Paul Heyman was right. The commissioner was a very big fan of mine because of my uncle and agreed to let ECW run the show. As long as I made some stuff and it was done safely. He did, however, make the stipulation that I would be the only one able to use tables or chairs at the event, so he could see how things would go. Paul and I figured that things would end up going just fine for ECW in Pennsylvania once again, just as long as there was no incidents when others started slipping that hardcore stuff back into their matches. After I got the green light, I was booked to return to ECW on November 18th of 95 at the November to Remember. Shortly thereafter, I was introduced as a mystery opponent on an ECW card promoting the big event. The lights went out, then they came back on, and the fans went crazy for me. It was really a cool moment. I even got goosebumps as they screamed and cheered for me returning. I was like their hero. And I usually don't go for all that sentimental shit. So my second sit in ECW had officially begun. Come November to remember, the ball had started rolling and ECW didn't stop. I beat Hack Myers around Thanksgiving, I beat Cactus Jack after Christmas, then I beat Stevie Richards right after New Years. In 1996, I worked with a lot of guys I really liked working with. Just before my pairing with RVD, our famous tag team run, I was working a lot with Too Cold Scorpio. Let's talk about Too Cold. Before, many people may not know this, but Too Cold was tough as nails. He was by no means a pushover. He would always fight back and hold his own, and he could party with the best of them. When Too Cold was in WCW, Ric Flair was just taking over the booking again. He was finally going against some names like Ricky Steamboat, who he really respected and watched on television as he was getting into the business. To get over with the boys, he rolled with it. Too Cold told me about partying with Buddy Lee Parker and Brian Pillman, and eventually taking the fall for when Flair decided to make a power statement after he took control. You see, for Flair to look like he was doing his job, he had to catch someone doing something wrong. What easier way to do that than to hit somebody with a drug test who he knew was going to fail? I guess there was an incident in the Bahamas, as the story goes, and some party goers ended up telling where they had got their party supplies. Well, the next morning, Too Cold ended up having to take a piss test. If I could have delayed the test for 48 hours... That wouldn't find any coke in his system, but I said that in an interview. But it just was pot, and it was what they were looking for. I would have to delay the test for years and years with the amount that I had in my system. So I took it, I failed it like crazy, and they let me go again. Because Flair didn't tell Too Cold Scorpio himself that I was being let go, anger started to build. Too Cold told everybody that I wasn't right. He felt like he had singled me out, and Flair made it very clear that he saw Ric Flair any time he was going to whip his ass. Later on, Too Cold went back to New Japan Pro Wrestling, and they were going to have a match in the North Korean tour. It was a conjunction with WCW called Collision in Korea. Ric Flair also was the one who booked it. Ric Flair is one of the guys who got me fired from WCW. Too Cold, Masa Sayoto when he heard the news, when I got a hold of him, I'm going to kick that motherfucker's ass. No, Scorpio, Masa said, don't do that. If you do that, you'll end up being fired here as well. Too Cold was disappointed, but agreed not to. When the tour finally came, guys like the Steiner brothers, Scott Norton, and whoever else they were using at the time had to lock up their pills and everything else they had in their hotel room so that they weren't going to get in trouble now, they had to do it in Tokyo before they went to North Korea. If they didn't, the strictest in the country would have them in. Now, by the time they got to North Korea, some of the guys were still going through withdrawals, and some others were just angry. Too Cold was on the tour bus sitting next to Road Warrior Hawk, waiting for the rest of the wrestlers, when all of a sudden they looked up and they saw Ric Flair. Ric really lived that gimmick. He was standing on the sidewalk, with the hair slicked back, looking at his Rolex and waiting for his Mercedes to roll up to pick him up. Hawk had been riding around in Rick's limo for the past couple of days, but for whatever reason decided to get on the bus with the boys today, when he didn't see his fancy ride on that particular morning. Look, there's Flair, Hawk said, not knowing Too Cold had heat with him. I wonder what he's waiting for. Yeah, I wonder, Too Cold said. Maybe he's looking for me, Hawk said. I rode within the last couple of days. Maybe he wants me to ride with him again. Fuck that motherfucker, Tukold said. Let me ride by himself. Why you say that, Hawk said. What the fuck are you talking about? Fuck that guy. Let him ride by himself. Words were exchanged, and it was possibly Hawk dropped the N-word, potentially. Something to the lines towards Cold. Whatever he said, it all came out. Cold jumped on Hawk, and they started beating the hell out of each other. He would not be disrespected. Now, Hawk was no pushover at all, but everyone said Too Cold was beating this guy's ass in the middle of the bus. Some of the young boys tried to jump in and break it up, but Too Cold just flung them around like they were nothing. Too Cold was destroying him. Hawk had professed and told everyone that he was in a fight with the Hell's Angels, that he could knock anybody out with one punch, but that really wasn't the case with Too Cold. He hit him with everything he had in the face and Cold just shook it off and laughed and went back to beating up Hawk. Just before he could Hawk gouge Hawk's eyes out, the Japanese boys finally were able to pull Cold Scorpio off of him. It was a good thing too, Cold says, telling the story today. Hawk was bleeding like crazy and I wasn't afraid that I would get hepatitis for the things I would do to him. Cold said he realized that he had fucked up. North Korea was finally letting Americans in, almost like a peace treaty. And then they hear this happened. Probably not a good thing. So like a man, Tuchold went up to each person on the bus and apologized, telling them there was no place to do this. However, when he went back up to Hawk to try to apologize to him, he learned that Hawk was still fired up over it. He knew it wasn't over. Later that night in the hotel, Tukold decided that he needed to get a good weapon together in case Hawk decided to get revenge on him for what happened in the bus. Scorpio was rooming with Chris Benoit, of all people at the time, who was watching him forge something evil together. Benoit shook his head, looking at Tukold like he must have lost his mind. Tukold was making a shank out of two stainless steel chopsticks. Please, please tell me that you will not be stabbing someone over here in North Korea, Chris said. You have your passport. You'll be stuck over here in North Korea. Now, if you do this shit in Tokyo, that's a little different. How so? Tukold asked. "'I know enough mob motherfuckers that I can get you home,' he said, "'but please just don't stab anyone in North Korea, okay?' With Chris Benoit being the voice of reason, Too Cold Scorpio agreed and went out of his way to quelch the heat he had with Hawk, at least until the end, at least until they got back to Tokyo. Now, it only made sense that I was paired up with Rob Van Dam, right? This meant I could ride with him and also work with him. I was very familiar We agreed with a certain formula, we would make great matches on TV, and I think it's safe to say looking at the response over the years, we did pretty well. You know, it's funny because whenever I'm asked about tagging with RVD, I tend to remember the matches that we had, wrestling him a lot, and being his partner. I don't know of this because a lot of partying, but I guess it makes sense that you barely even remember who your partner is during those years, when you're always standing on the apron and you would seemingly remember your opponents a whole lot better because there was more interaction. For this program, we decided to do long-term. That was the first wrestling we had. I was used to singles matches, and eventually tagging up with him became more normal. We decided to go with making a storyline about RVD not respecting me anymore, but eventually growing to respect me leaded to an eventual alliance. We had some really great singles matches over the years. Then, after the feud was over... Rob challenged the team of Doug Furness and Phil LaFon in their debut match in ECW. Rob told them that they were going to make it an ECW. They would first need to learn respect from one man who could teach it to them. He taught me the meaning of the word. My tag team partner is Sabu. And finally, the alliance between Rob Van Dam and Sabu was officially made. In case you were hoping for some dirt on Doug Furness, I can only really say this. Doug was really stiff as shit. As far as LaFon is concerned, I found it amazing that he could get so fucked up on a single night, but then be ready to work like 30 to 40 minutes later the next day. Around the same time, I also had matches against Chris Candido, who was always excellent in the ring. Most everyone drank the Kool-Aid that Paul was serving us. It was well documented the fact that Paul had everyone believing that ECW reflected a revolution that was going to make everyone in the locker room rich. We continued to work hard raising the measuring stick for everyone more and more on each show, consistently trying to outdo ourselves each and every night. The hard work was finally paying off. We were getting higher ratings than ever, but in order to take it to the next level, Paul knew we needed something even bigger, an international presence. Now, come 1996, RVD and I went to feud with the ECW tag team champions, The Eliminator, which was John Cronus and Perry Saturn. Now, at that time, magazines and dirt sheets alike loved them. The Eliminators were considered by some to be the best tag team in America, and maybe even the best in the world. Since we were big attractions as well, Paul and Rob and I were chasing The Eliminators to get a bigger title push. We didn't need the belts, so we never quite managed to beat them. Well, being considered one of the best at that time, in my opinion, they were actually, to be honest, pretty average workers most of the time. While Perry was okay, I did actually have a little bit of a problem with John Cronus. I didn't think it was his fault, though. I think his partners were just, they were just related. I mean, let's talk about that. When Rob and I would hit Cronus with our trademark splash and leg drop combination, he just wouldn't stay down. He wouldn't sell it or anything. Cronus would just get up like he was Superman or something. After seeing Cronus no-sell our shit a handful of times in a row, I decided that I would actually have to shoot on him and make him sell it. Saito taught me how to do that. It was nothing personal. It was just half-special, for sure. When uh, Rob and I were hitting him with the rolling thunder combo, we laid it in so hard, I think I knocked him silly. I mean, I was so stiff that that half-special before he was going to get, well, it definitely got him. When Saturn saw that... He knew that we were going to do it. Cronus, on the other hand, had no idea and charged me with his red eyes. Perry stood back to break us up. Perry came up to me after the match to shake my hand, just like laughing, not even questioning why I was shooting on Cronus. Is he, like, legit slow, right? I asked Perry. I mean, he gets money from the state for being special, doesn't he? See, I kind of had a feeling about John Cronus. Perry Saturn himself was never a problem. He could shoot on you at times, but nothing major. Most of the time he was fine to work with, but sometimes it was a little hard to maneuver him unless you outright told him exactly what you needed to do. He was wooden, stiff, but if I pushed him to send him into the ropes, he often didn't realize what I was trying to get him to do, and he didn't move. He was also a little hard to read sometimes, at least for me. Like if you thought you were going to go one way, and you probably were wrong, and then you would think, hmm, we'll go the other way. Well, shit didn't work that way either. A really good worker was easy to read. They work well, they react when things go bad. And at this time, Perry was good when you told him what to do, but he wasn't really polished enough to be a real leader in the ring yet. Now, come February of 1997, we were surprised when Paul came to the locker room and said that we were going to be working spots with the WWF. This seemed like a direct contradiction to what we were trying to do. He said that we were trying to be a revolution, but now, I guess it made sense to me. The cross-promotion meant our brand and our guys were going to be on their programming. This meant more exposure and more potential buys for ECW. When ECW showed up on WWE's locker room, the mood changed. It was really tense, to say the least. ECW had been slamming the hell out of WWE on the mic for so many years, practically every show. It was like cartoony. We called it garbage. We called it bullshit kid stuff. I think of WWE people believed that there must be some truth to our promos. Hell, I think some of our own guys and their own guys believed it as well. Now, on that first Monday Night Raw taping with ECW at the Manhattan Center, a dozen or more of our guys had been booked by Vince himself for matches that were sure to be historic for diehard pro wrestling fans everywhere. Now, don't get me wrong, promotions like NWA and AWA worked together for supercards, as well as New Japan and All Japan. The difference there was Vince almost never talked about any of their promotion in his own words or ever mentioned them on his television product. Paul wanted ECW to look like a big team that was invading a corporate promotion. He had custom tracksuits with ECW logo on them. We all showed up wearing our colors, while Vince was actually impressed with the way we looked. We were more professional, perhaps, than he had expected our presence to be. The WWF boys were clearly not happy to see us. It was already a competitive atmosphere. ECW guys, the same guys that shit on them week after week, were coming in to take their spots on their show... We were taking a lot of WWF guys' television time away from them, and they were pissed. Another reason they were pissed is probably because many of them had been somewhat worked into believing that the elements of ECW was actually real. The build-up for the cross-promotion relationship had been in the works for quite some time now, but only a few people were in on it. Rumor has it that Vince had reached out to Paul after King of the Ring and was booked in Philadelphia in 1995. ECW had grown quite impressive, a great local following in the hometown. So much that ECW chants sometimes stole the show. After that, Paul started working a deal with WWE behind the closed-door scenes, but nobody knew about it. The idea was to work ECW into WWF storylines, almost like an advertisement for our shows. Paul wanted this national exposure, but never told the talent anything about it. From what people have said, I think the only people who really knew about the negotiations were Paul, Vince, and maybe Bruce Pritchard. Paul kept it all so close to the chest, but he wouldn't tell any talent. He would continue to live the anti-corporation message every single time he talked to us. Maybe about a year later, some of the ECW advertisement negotiations had moved forward, but neither Paul nor Vince told anybody again. Both promotions agreed to make the surprise really worked. They were going to have to keep it close to the chest and keep an element of realism to what was happening. If the secret had been leaked, it would be far less impactful as far as the fan base was concerned because more and more smart marks were starting to get internet savvy. At the time, WWF Mind Games pay-per-view, Dreamer and Sandman apparently bought tickets and sat ringside with Paul. They were all wearing their ECW colors so everybody knew exactly who they were Because of the secrecy of the angle, Paul actually had the Eliminators off-camera way back in the audience in case a real fight was going to break out, and Paul and Vince didn't smarten up either one of the locker rooms. This was done to make the ECW guys look like they were real, and also to make sure that the WWF wrestlers decided to take matters into their own hands. Now, in the first match on the pay-per-view, Savio Vega was just minding his own business wrestling in a Caribbean strap match against Justin Hawk Bradshaw, when the Sandman took an opportunity moment to jump out of his seat and spit a stream of beer at Savio. Now, for anyone who knows Sandman, this totally could have been real, so it translated really well on screen. Eventually, I found out that only Savio knew about the beer spot. The commentators didn't know. Even Bradshaw didn't know. Bradshaw had gone onto record to say that he actually was ready to hop the fence and fight, If Savio hadn't cut him off, Vega played it off it was just some fan who was out of line, who just wanted to add some realism. Also on television, the commentating team never mentioned who we were, never even mentioned our ECW names. This even more gave us credibility for being an unscripted vibe. Now behind the scenes, the agents quickly got word that they were beyond pissed. As the match continued, a handful of officials made their way to ringside trying to do things off camera to resolve the issue. Tommy Dreamer said Jerry Briscoe was furious backstage. He was daring us to step over the rail so that he could get at him ourselves. There was some craziness with security as well. And eventually the ECW guys were escorted out of the building by an actual police officer. In the WWF locker room, the other wrestlers wanted to kill us. Then, the next night on Raw, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog were defending their tag team championships against Skip and Zip, now known as the Body Donnas. Then, out of nowhere, ECW chants broke out and Taz jumped the guardrail. He had a sign that read, Sabu Fears Taz. In doing this, Taz actually injured a photographer, like legitimately, further adding question to the fans as to whether or not this was real. Jim Ross never mentioned the ECW faction by name. He just said it was some local outfit that wrestlers from a bingo hall were trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. The real purpose of this was actually calculated with ECW. It was a worldwide commercial for our first ever pay-per-view barely legal. This immediately became buzz talk among the smart fans, even for people who were familiar with ECW altogether. Paul wanted the exposure to reach a wrestling audience that was unfamiliar with our product and to ask themselves a few questions about that. Well, what is ECW? Who is Sabu? Who is Taz? Why is Sabu afraid of this guy? In the end, it was smart. It was a great work. The incidents made the dirt sheet writers think it was real. It created all kinds of talk between fans and professionals that probably didn't even like wrestling. Essentially, in hindsight, I think Paul just paid for advertising time and... How we choose to use it was our choice. You have to give WWE and ECW props. With WCW beating WWE with the NWO angle, both promotions could definitely benefit from this move, and they did. Now we fast forward to the Manhattan Center for Raw tapings. Jerry the King Lawler had a traceable history with Paul Heyman because they had both worked together in Memphis. Smart's fans already knew this, that they didn't get along, and there'd been a big falling out between the two. So Jerry was used to being the catalyst to bring ECW to WWF to continue with this element of realism. Now, a week or so before the invasion angle started, Lawler cut a promo on WWF television telling his hatred towards Paul Heyman and his bullshit promotion, and then he challenged the ECW wrestler to appear on Raw the following week, predicted that they would suck and prove his point that they were nothing, and it was just all hype. Paul Heyman phoned into Raw and accepted the challenge on February the 24th of 1997 at the birthplace of Monday Night Raw, the Manhattan Center. Now the next week, ECW stars like the Dudleys, the BWO, the Sandman, they all made appearances to compete in officially sanctioned WWF matches to put their money where their mouth were. Paul booked us on top names and exposed us to get prepared for the pay-per-view, to introduce the trademark ECW extreme style to the WWE universe. Paul Heyman even appeared to make commentary to make sure his product was represented correctly. I was booked for a run-in during the Taz vs. Mikey Whipbrake match where I fucking fell. People still bust my balls about that slip. It was a major botch to this very day. During the match, I prepared for an aerial jump off the R in the Monday Night Raw logo. Three big painted wooden letters positioned above the entryway. Now, the plan was, at the time, I would jump off the logo and jump down off of one of the letters onto Team Taz, who was a bunch of extras wearing Taz colors. Things didn't quite go as planned. Now, what happened was, before the show, I checked out the letters by eyeballing where they were positioned. I told the production crew that I would just need a ladder behind the letter R, and everything would be just fine. So when the time came that night for the spot, the ladder was right there waiting for me. Now little did I know it was cheaply made, and it was a piece of shit ladder. As I test climbed up the ladder behind the R a little earlier in the night, I rested my hands on the prop, and the whole thing fucking moved. I figured, well, maybe I should leapfrog over the letter. That was a possibility, but not only would it be less impressive than jumping off top of it, it wouldn't possibly work. I wouldn't even clear the aisle. I quickly enlisted the help of the Dudleys backstage to both hold the ladder and stabilize me as I would jump off the ladder. When my cue finally came, I raced to the top of the logo without a problem, but it just wasn't stable, no matter how hard they held it in place. When I got to the top and sprung off it, it moved under my feet and I fell behind me. I went straight down right on the R, barely touching anyone. My positioning was all off, and the people knew that it wasn't exactly right. To break my fall, no one was in place to catch me. I barely brushed one of the Team Taz members. And on camera, it looked good for a second, but then on the other one, it looked worse than the Sandman even trying to wrestle in a match. It was obvious I barely hit one of the guys, and the rest of them didn't know what to do, so they just fell down like dominoes. With nobody there for me, they dropped the ball. No oh, man, we got knocked the fucking wind out of me, too. I was supposed to do a run-in and a face-to-face to tease our pay-per-view, but I couldn't even breathe at that point. I jogged and I jumped to the ring, but I was so blown up, it was a mess. Taz thought it was the funniest shit in the world. It was shitty, but I tried. The only major ECW star that didn't show at that time was RVD. Rob's contract was either up or almost up, and he was seriously thinking about leaving ECW at that time to go to WWE, but he wasn't involved with any of this yet. After the WCW situation had ended, and ECW started working with WWE, the Invasion shows on February. A number of WWE stars made appearances on our shows. The biggest storyline that came out of all of that was Heyman vs. Jerry Lawler, but unfortunately that didn't last very long. Egos clashed backstage on who would win and who would lose, and agendas didn't jive, and at the end, the agreement was for two companies just to part their ways. Before WWE-ECW relationship dwindled altogether, Jerry Lawler decided to invade the ECW arena himself, accepting indie dates from Paul. He said ECW stood for extremely crappy wrestling, and basically dissed hardcore wrestling fans right there in their home base. Fans never expected him to show up there, and they practically rioted. Essentially, he was saying that everything that we do in ECW was shitty. The building was built out of toilet paper, he said. Lawler was set to headline a number of main event matches, including one with Rob Van Dam and me at Heatwave, and then one at Hardcore Heaven. But on June 23, 1997, at a WWF Raw taping, I was wrestling Flash Funk, also known as Too Cold Scorpio, in a match that ended outside the ring in a double countout. But after the match, I went to put Flash Funk through a table, but the table didn't break. I didn't know why, but I needed to do something to save the spot. So I defaulted onto a trick that I had done a number of times when this happened in the past. I went crazy and I jumped into the crowd. I started pushing people out of their seats and throwing chairs into the ring and towards Too Cold. The agents immediately followed my lead and sent security to get me away. The dirt sheet writers like The Torch and The Observer all reported that on Monday Night Raw tapings, Rob Van Dam and Cebu weren't happy with what WWE creative had booked them for. I mean, this is mostly true, but some of it was also Paul not wanting his brand to look weak because once this happened, they wouldn't be considered a threat any longer. He wanted me to beat Flash funk clean, and he also didn't like the idea of RVD being putting over Jesse James Armstrong, also known as Road Dog. Now, the idea behind this was our top guys couldn't come in and lose to WWF mid-card guys, especially losing in these matches at this time. It didn't make any sense for us. Now, if I had worked out correctly, the plan would have been ECW's matches on Raw each week would build up to a headline ECW vs. WWF match at SummerSlam. Now, the talk was that Team ECW would be Tommy Dreamer, Sandman taking on Jerry Lawler, aligning himself with ECW turncoat Rob Van Dam. In return, ECW would get plugs for our second pay-per-view, Hardcore Heaven. However, once again, politics and egos eventually broke down the relationship. That flash-funk match was one of the things that hurt the invasion. And WWE fans didn't want to see that on Raw. But by July 9th, 19th, 1997, ECW ran an experimental eye pay-per-view. You know, rather than a traditional pay-per-view where you would call your local cable company, this was on the internet. It was pretty much off of WWF programming, but Paul was still finishing up some of the internal storylines from the invasion angle. It was RVD, myself, and Jerry Lawler versus Tommy Dreamer, Sandman, and Rick Rude in a steel cage. To politically keep everyone happy, it ended in a no contest. That was the end of our inter-promotional crossover. That's going to go ahead and end part one of chapter 11. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the no ropes barbed wire match with Terry Funk. That's where we will begin. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Overbooked. Once again, you can continue to follow the Front Row Material brand wherever you get your fine podcasts. Front Row Material interviews and our daily podcast called Headlines brings you the updated every single day interviews, exciting news and all of the scandals headlines is your one-stop shop for your podcasting news when it comes to the world of professional wrestling with that being said my name is Mike Freeland and I will catch you on the next episode of overbooked